God, I pray that as we open your word, I pray you give me the words to say. I pray, Lord, that there'd be a, a corporate humility as to the way in which we respond to your truth. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be compelled to worship you as we look at the, your intent, your design for the church that you started. I pray, Lord, that you guide us and help us through this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. This morning we're going to jump into the qualifications of elders. The qualifications of elders. And as we get started, I want to look at a passage with you again to help us understand what's happening. In verse 5 of chapter 1. Paulus says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Last week, we started out with just an introduction to this topic, and we looked at seven principles as we jump into this whole issue of elder leadership. We looked at their prevalence. Uh, we examined like the basis in the New Testament that everywhere you see a New Testament church, you see this office. Everywhere you don't see a New Testament church that doesn't have uh, both the office of elders and deacons. So their prevalence is clear. You see it um, everywhere that Paul went. We see their prevalence. We see their co-office. Their co-office is deacons. We see this tandem, we see this team of elders and deacons, and we see the principle out of Acts chapter 6 that there is a focus of ministry that elders are to pursue and prioritize, and the deacons are to come alongside them so that they can keep their ministry priorities. Their priorities are doctrine, discipline, direction, to guide the flock, guard the flock, to graze the flock. And in order to keep that priority of prayer and the word, deacons are to come alongside in service. So they don't work in opposition to one another. They work in tandem. They work as a team. Their prevalence, their co-office, they're distinctive. What makes them different from deacons? And the main difference that you see in the list of 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a passage that you could put alongside Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. You would look at 1 Timothy 3, and you would see deacons, and then you would see elders. Um, the, the difference in their priority and their distinctive is the teaching role of the elders. And we'll see that next week as we jump into more of the teaching aspect of elders. We saw their ministry priorities, as I just highlighted. We noticed their gender their gender is specifically mentioned here, and we'll see it again today. This is an office in the church that God calls men to participate in. We see their characteristics, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And when you look at verse 5, he says, so that you might put what remained into order, that you might have it functioning. I was uh, headed to a uh, flag football game the other night. And uh, was driving down Broad Street, and 
it was the strangest thing. I, I was just driving and talking to Will and Ben, and I, all of a sudden, I just this this I didn't know what happened. I had this jolt on the side of my car, and and another vehicle hit me. I didn't even see him. And he hit me hard, and I was like, whoa, what is that? I was like, I couldn't figure it out. And, and thankfully, I was okay, and Ben was okay, and Will was okay. And, and I immediately, uh, the fella, I, I could tell, I was like, what happened? You know, you're going through your mind, like, did I do something? And I was like, no, I'm just driving in the right lane. And, and, and I pulled over, and he pulled over behind me, and he got out of the car, and I got out of the car, and the boys were a little bit frantic, and I was like, it's okay, we're fine. And I got out of the car, and the first thing the guy told me was he didn't have any insurance, and I was really thrilled to hear that. The, uh, I was really encouraged. And, uh, and so I was like, look, man, you're okay, I'm okay, we're going to make it through this, it's going to be all right. So we called the police, and while we were standing there, the guy was like, I'm so glad the damage is not that bad. And I hated to be a bearer of bad news to the fella, but I was like, man, Every panel on this side of the car has been hit. This is not good. This is not pretty. And uh, so, so I found out they're very likely are going to total the car just because of the amount of damage, and my vehicle's just not worth a lot of money. It's just not worth much. Well, I went to Precision, and the gentleman came out, and he got all of uh, his uh, computer program and his phone and thing, and he was writing down everything, and he was looking at it, and he was looking at that vehicle, and he was trying to assess what needed to take place in order for that vehicle to be put into order. How can that vehicle be put back into order? You, you, you tracking with me? What does it need to look like in order to take something out of order to put it back in order? So when we look at the church of Jesus Christ, when Paul looked to the church, he had a heart that the church of Jesus would grow into maturity, that they would be complete in Christ. And in order for that to take place, one of the things that we have to see here, and this is important, is the role the church plays within the life of the Christian. So many people, and I think it's a, a modern phenomenon, but you have so many people that you talk to these days in our parts of the world who say, ah, oh, the church isn't for me. I worship on my bass boat. I worship in a tree stand. I worship in the morning when I get up early and have my devotion. But we have to understand God has designed his church and he's called believers to participate in it. And when we look at passages like Titus, chapter 1 and Titus chapters 1 through 3, we see his design for our sanctification taking place in the realm of a godly community of God-called people into this church family. And we see that look like that. So when we look at these characteristics, we're seeing how this is going to be designed. What type of leaders are to lead the church of Jesus Christ? So this morning, let's look at the characteristics of elders. We read in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, 
For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. We look at this and I was going through the book of Titus and just thinking about, okay, how does these qualifications and how does this list of uh, leader characteristics fit with the overall context of the book of Titus? I want you to think about a few passages with me before we get into this list. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We focused on this a couple of weeks already, and I want us to think about it. The church of Jesus Christ needs to be led by men who manifest the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. If that is to be the basis, if you think about Paul's heartbeat was to see the sake of the faith of God's elect. He knew that God had called a people. He knew that God was sovereign over this salvation. And he knew that as he evangelized, God would do what only God could do. God would call his people. But then he knew something. He had a responsibility. He had a heartbeat that the people that came into the family of God, that they grow up in the maturity in Christ. He didn't want to see them living like babies. He wanted them to grow in godliness. And how is that going to be affected in their life? They were to what? Proclaim Christ. They were to equip the saints for the work of the ministry by teaching the word of God. And it was the word of God that grows up people into the knowledge of the truth. And because the Holy Spirit is the one bringing that knowledge upon the human heart that knowledge now transforms the Christian into godliness. And so the people that lead the church need to be examples of that very principle. Another one that I think you can see is in chapter two, verse one. And we're gonna see this as we move into chapter two, but, but Paul tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And the word sound is a medical term. It means healthy. Teach what accords with healthy doctrine. But here's what's fascinating. When you look at chapter 2, and when we spend time in it, you'll see this worked out. Verses 2 through the end of the chapter in Titus chapter 2 illustrate healthy living. So Paul is basically saying, teach healthy doctrine which accords with healthy living. The elders of the church not only are to be marked by the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness, but again, they are to be marked by healthy teaching that has led to healthy living in their own lives. A third principle here is Titus chapter 2, 
verse 11. The summary passage of Titus chapter 2 is when Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The elders in the church are to reflect this model that Paul presents in Titus chapter 2, verse 12. You see it in many ways. You could say the elders of the church are to adorn the gospel of God. But then finally, look at chapter 3, verse 8, and then chapter 3, verse 15. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. What's fascinating is um, if you mess up, you remember taking uh, algebra? My dad used to say the, uh, the best four years of his life was the second year of algebra. And uh, I can relate to that. But you remember the equal sign? And that equal sign used to drive me crazy. Because you got to bring everything on one side and you got to get the equal sign, or you know, you got to get everything right. And I was always like, wait a minute, why does it matter that much? You know, why does the X have to be here and the Y here and all that? But, but when you're looking at that equation, you see, if you get the, the equation set up wrong, some people think that works take place prior to grace. And where does that lead you? It leads you into all the religious systems of the world. It leads you into a, it leads you into a self-righteous justification. But what Paul preached was grace takes place prior to works. We don't do what we do to earn God's favor. We do what we do because of God's favor. And those that have been changed by grace now are to engage in good deeds through the grace of the Holy Spirit. And so when we look at all of these, we see this principle. Elders are to manifest the grace of God in their good deeds. If not, how in the world is the church going to be effectively led in these areas? So the first characteristic in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, the first one is that they're to be above reproach. He says, if anyone is above reproach. Now, what does that mean? It, it's the idea, I was looking up uh, different commentaries and, and, and lexicons and just basically trying to get good definitions. And, and I'll, I'll share with you some of the research that I discovered out of this, you know, or, or what I came out of the, what came out of the research. One is uh, not merely unaccusable, but unaccused, free from any legal charge. I remember uh, I got a friend that used to live in Texaco, New Mexico. I just like saying it. And, uh, and that's down there near uh, Lubbock. Texas, really. It's near Texas Tech on the New Mexico side. And, and, and you know what his church used to do? And at first I thought this was pretty outrageous. Not outrageous, but I was like, whoa. But the more I thought about it, I thought, I don't have a problem with that. You know what they would do when they would install an elder? 
before they would install an elder, they would bring the name before the congregation. And much like what we do here, we would give like a period of time where the person's name was brought before the congregation and basically to see, okay, is there any charges against the person is presented? Well, what he did was he would take an ad ad in the local paper and say, so-and-so is a candidate for eldership at First Baptist Church, Texaco. Is there anybody in the community of Texaco, New Mexico, who believes that this candidate is not worthy to be an elder? Why? Because he didn't want anybody serving in that role that was accused. Now, again, we understand there can be false accusations, and there's a principle and a way in which the Scripture calls to go through those. But what his point was is that the, the, the leader of God's church is not to be perfect, because what did we learn in 1 John? 1 John says, if we say we're without sin, we're liars, and the truth is not in us. It sort of goes against the uh, holiness sanctification here in our area, doesn't it? A little difficult to maintain a perfection standard when John says, if you say you're without, you're without sin, you don't even have the truth. But, but what's the point? It's not perfection, but the idea is one of predictability is the leaders in the church of Jesus Christ are to be predictable. They're, they're, they're men who still sin. They're men who have to, you remember in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess is in the present tense. So, so the regular rhythm of the Christian's life is one of daily confession and repentance. So, so here is a man that is not perfect. He's actually a man who deals and confesses and repents of his sins on a regular basis, but he's a man who's untarnished. He's a man without accusation. I was reading some other things. I, you know, I was, uh, I got a, somebody sent me a video and, uh, it was pretty amazing. Okay, so isn't it funny to think about, like, how many years ago was it, you know, on, t on cable TV we had the shopping network? I mean, and I used to watch that when I was a kid because I was just fascinated to see how long people could talk about one product. And it was always humorous to me because it would be, some, you know, like an iron, and you have to talk 15 minutes about an iron. Well, Judy, this is an amazing iron because if you take this right here and it's got this chamber where you put water in it and... It has these settings, and I mean, like, I mean, try it. Try to talk about some household product more than two minutes. It's unreal. Well, there was this video my friend sent me, and this guy was plugging a ladder system. And it was like, <laughs> it was a ladder that it looked like one of those where if you were painting in your house and you had like a split-level stair going up, you know, where you got that uh, landing in the middle, and then you, it would be like a, a ladder system that allowed you to have like miniature scaffolding that you go up vertically, go across horizontally, and then it goes up again. It was pretty amazing. And this guy was like, this is amazing. It works great. And he was like, what's so wonderful about this is how sturdy it is. And then he touches it and it basically starts to fall apart. And it just, it just folds. And the lady's like, ha ha, she laughs. And the guy's like trying to continue to sell this product. He's like, actually, I just did it wrong, it's fine. And he sets it back. Well, then he doubles down. And this guy, I got to give it to him. He was going for it. 
And, and I don't believe for a second he thought that thing was sturdy, but I think he was trying to sell it. And, and he said, no, this thing is so sturdy. He goes, let me show you something. And then he proceeds to get up on top of it. And I'm like, oh, no, there's a reason I'm getting this video, right? And he falls, and it was awful. He falls just, I mean, in the most awkward of ways, the way you would expect me to fall. And his chin hits the thing. And now he's like, he's like, he's down on the ground. His legs are above his waist. His chin's on the ladder, and he still is trying to sell it. <laughs> and he's standing there. I had to write it down. He's saying stuff like, uh, it's, he said, it's safe and durable. <laughs> and he said, continue to call for it. That was the last thing I heard him say, continue to call for this. And he was upside down. And I was thinking, you know, his words lacked credibility because everyone that watched him his actions and what took place undermined his words. That's the heartbeat of being above reproach. Does the leader's actions. You see, if a leader is in a church scenario, it's not that he's not going to fail because if he didn't live a life of exhibiting failure at times, he wouldn't need the gospel of God's grace. But it's that his life, by the grace of God, is exhibiting a gracious predictability because of the growth of the knowledge of the truth that's manifested in his life. And, and, and Paul here is saying, look, I, I was reading one quote by one commentator. He says that the leaders in the church must have no sinful defect in their lives that could justify, could, that, that, that could justly call their virtue their righteousness or their godliness and to question and indict them. It's a humbling thing. I, I was reading, um, it, you know, it's not that they don't fail. I liked what uh, this guy named McDonald said. He said, if the elder do minor wrongs, they are prompt to make them right by confession to God, by apology to the person wronged, and by restitution if applicable. If you have a person that is a liar, how can he be above reproach? If you have a person that is known in an area of sinfulness that is clear, how can they be above reproach? It's the idea, when I think of this and reflect on it, it's the idea of an individual living with a clear conscience, a humble yearning to follow God, a humble boldness, a servant leadership, an approachability. They're above reproach. There's, their lives are transparent because what you see is what you get. What they show on the outside is not an attempt to cover up what is taking place behind the scenes. I came across this in one commentary that if you're ever looking for commentaries on the New Testament, one I highly recommend is the Pillar New Testament Commentary. It's a really good one if you're looking for some scholarly but devotional thoughts on a book of the Bible. And the Pillar Commentary to Titus makes a really good point here. This word is used in 1 Corinthians 1.8, above reproach. And listen to how it's used. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, it says, speaking of Jesus, he will also keep you firm to the end 
so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love this. The, the author of the commentary basically makes this idea. He says, Paul's not saying the Corinthians are presently perfect. They are not even blameless in Paul's assessment from a doctrinal and ethical point of view. He is rather speaking of them as believers in Christ, as those who have believed and received the grace of the gospel. He goes on. They possess a righteousness through faith that assures them of God's present as well as future exoneration. They are blameless in God's sight by virtue of the sufficiency of Christ's death for their sake. Now, here's his point. He says it's the kind of concept where this leader, because of the blamelessness through the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's the blamelessness. Think about this. Do you realize this morning, if you stood before God right now, apart from Christ, you would be condemned in your sin forever, period. But do you realize the hope that we have in the gospel of grace is that I stand before God the Father and God the Father gives me right standing. I'm considered in right standing before the Father because of the righteousness of Jesus. And now the Christian is so mindful of that. You remember Paul when he's writing Ephesians? It's, the whole, it's almost like the whole book is be who you are. Be who you are. You're chosen. You're forgiven. You've been given an inheritance. You've been lavished with grace. And it's almost like Paul is saying now, allow your life to reflect who you are. Well, his point here in the pillar commentary is that the leaders of God's church are so mindful of future exoneration and present position in Christ through his righteousness that their lives manifest in the present being above reproach. That's the heart of the gospel. And that's what takes place here. And what he does now is he illustrates if a man is above reproach, the primary place that this is going to begin to be seen is in his home life. It's in his home life. It's sobering, isn't it? But isn't it true that if you really want to know about me, follow me home? If I really want to know about you, let me hide in the corner of the kitchen? Because we have a way of disguising things sometimes, don't we? It's sad, isn't it, how often we can portray something to people that we're not, but the people that know us the best are the people that we live with. And it starts out, and he says, the husband of one wife, the husband of one wife. Now, this has caused a lot of controversy over the years. What does it mean? The major views on this. Uh, some people would say he must be married and never divorced. Other people would say he must not remarry if his first wife died. Others would say the main emphasis here is that he must not live in a polygamous lifestyle. And again, you got to think about the context of the day in which this was written. So that's one of the reasons why that view is espoused. But the final one I think is the most 
accurate, he must remain true and faithful to his wife. The, the word actually, the phrase in, in the Greek would be, he is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. I, I think that it's not making the charge that he had to be married. I mean, we have debates through history. We don't have full way of being dogmatic either way, but we look at, look at Paul. We, a lot of people think he might have been married later. A lot of people think he wasn't. Um, we know that the script, I don't see that the remarried clause in the, in the instance of a wife dying, it doesn't, to me, make biblical sense when there is a clause for remarriage after our spouse dies. I don't even think divorce is the primary consideration here. I think what he's speaking of is, if you want to know who a man is, watch the way he deals with his spouse. Does he only have eyes for her? Does he have eyes for other women? Because there's a lot of people in the history of the you know, Protestantism, if we go back and think about in our area, that have met the condition of never being divorced, but they clearly have eyes for other people. You can be married and not faithful. You can be married and, and have a wandering eye. And what appears to be happening here, and what I believe the text is saying, is he's speaking about a faithful attitude towards his wife. He's got eyes for his wife. He's a one-woman man. He's not flirtatious. He's not one marked by wondering eyes and wondering loyalty when it comes to females. This individual is a one-woman man. We get into the next part here, and again, he stays in the home. And this is a tough one as well. He says, so, so I believe that um, this is speaking of faithfulness. This is speaking of is, is the candidate, is the person in the leadership position, is he faithful to his wife? Is he a one-woman man in the way that he handles himself around other women, the way he handles himself with his wife? He goes on, though, and he speaks about his home in another way. If anyone is above reproach, I think he says, okay, let me illustrate what this is going to look like in the home, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, this is tough because what is he, at, what is he saying here? This, some of the options would be, is Paul saying that if you're going to be an elder, and again, a, the, there's elders, there's a plurality in these churches. If you're going to be in one of these offices of an eldership, is it a requirement that your children are Christians? That's what some people think this means. Some people would say that if, a, if there was an elder who had children who were not Christians, and, and typically this would be mainly manifested, I think, in the most clear ways as they become adults. They would say you're disqualified. What does he mean? I, I think that we have to be careful with that assertion. It's a possibility. The word believe here is the word that we have to examine. 
It's the word that can mean trustworthy. It's the word that can mean believe, but it's a word that also can mean faithful, faithful. Um, there's, a, there's one translation that says, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. And, he, and, he, and I, want, I want you to consider this. What, he, what appears to be going on is that he's saying, how can a man who's not capable of managing his own household, how can he care for the household of God? That seems to be. And before we look further into what it means to be this idea of believe or faithful children, those are our two options. He uses the word debauchery. He seems to clarify it. The kids are not known for debauchery. That word is uh, a person who spends freely on their own lust and appetites, a lawless insolence, an unmanageable kind of life. It's a, uh, a lack of self-restraint. You, you think about the prodigal. I think then you would be closer to the reality of this idea of debauchery. The next word is insubordination. It's the idea of not being willing to be persuaded. It's disobedient without orderly manner, disobedient to authority. What appears to be going on is that he's saying if there is an individual who's not a one-woman man, he's not qualified to lead the household of God. If there is an individual who has children who are faithless. Now, now, the question becomes, must an elder's children be believers? I was reading an article by a fellow named Justin Taylor, and, and I agreed with a lot of what he said. I think one thing that is difficult here is um, he said in one comment, he said, if we insist that a child's salvation is fundamentally connected to the managerial skills of the father, we have inadvertently assigned an unbiblical role to human action. I think there's wisdom in that. What have we just learned in verse one? Salvation whether we understand the mystery or not, salvation is based on the election of God. Yes, is there human responsibility involved in that? Of course. But ultimately, ultimately the sovereign wisdom of God. So when we look at this, another thought here is, is interesting. Um, when we think about, okay, so, so if you take the view that, that his children must be saved, what are we inferring if the man now leads in the church and there's people up under the household of God under his care that are lost? At that point, are we thinking, now think about it, if one is to indicate the way in which the other will be served, if the household of his family is to be an indicator of whether or not he's capable of leading in the greater context of the household of the church. If we're gonna hold him to the standard that his children must be believers here, what are we going to say when there's people up under the care of the church that are not believers? I think that's problematic. I think what he's speaking of here is 
in his managerial leadership while his children are in the home, they need to manifest respectable submission to their parents. And a lack of parenting that results in debauchery and insubordination to the parents, to the dad in the home, reflects that something is not right in the greater scheme of things. I tell you, I, that, that's where I land. I, I was thinking about this, and uh, I was thinking uh, about my children. I was thinking uh, about the sobering nature of that. I was thinking, wow, that, that's heavy, because I was thinking, I got six. And, um, and I was thinking, the first thing I thought of was like, please pray for my kids. Please pray for me. Because, and I wanted, you know, and I plan on doing so, and, and, and I thought they'd be right here, but they've scattered, uh, I, to say, hey, look, we're in this together. By the grace of God, don't ever forget that your actions affect other people. Your responses, you know, isn't, isn't it the nature of life to think that as you get older, you've got it figured out and you have your own way planned and you know, get this, y'all. This is crazy. When we moved here, Luke was one. Luke turned 17 today. And uh, wow, 17. And, and, and you know what? It's sobering. I, I pray that I pray that my kids' lives love the Lord Jesus Christ, that they don't grow hardened to the gospel, that they manifest true conversion and true repentance. But it's sobering, isn't it? Because I look in the mirror every day and I see my own weaknesses and I see my own flaws. I tell you, you know, I think it's one thing, you could look at this list almost incorrectly by saying, okay, let me, uh, let me take the current leaders. I, you know, if you're not careful, you could almost make this a... Uh, a negative versus a positive. You could almost become cynical or critical of anybody in a church leadership position. But I think one thing I pray that it does, while it should be a standard that needs to be kept and observed, I pray that it leads people to humility and prayer. Because, you know, that's something that's really serious here because there, there, is, a, there is a sense in which kids can completely undermine an individual seeking to lead the church of God. How can I in any way seek to care for your, your child if I'm, not man, if I'm not managing my own? It's humbling. Paul says, look, I, I was reading uh, Chrysostom. I always say his name wrong. I think that's right, Mike. <laughs> the, he helped me last week. The, uh, he says, we should observe what care he bestows upon children. For he who cannot be the instructor of his own children, how should he be the teacher of others? if he cannot keep in order those whom he has had with him from the beginning, whom he has brought up and without. And you know, one of the things Chrysostom brings up here is it's almost like what's scary is this, is what's scary is, you know, the, it's the whole like, here's the danger of human flesh. The danger of human flesh is the way that we typically think of growing up as the mall cop syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes the mall cop, is not a cop, he's a security guard, and he tends to be the guy who throws his 
authority around more than anybody in the whole mall, right? And you're almost like, what is going on with this guy? They gave him a little power, and now he's going crazy with it. That's the danger of anyone in a leadership position. What's the danger? The moment you're in a leadership position, it gives temptation to pride, arrogance, and power and authority that is not used in a way that God has designed. That's the danger because what he does now is he brings it out. And he says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers. Again, it could be his children are faithful. And how are they faithful? They're not living a debaucherous life. They're not insubordinate under his care is the way I would see that. I would not believe that this would extend into the adult life of the child. I believe that this would be explaining the managerial leadership qualities of the man while his kids are under his care. There's a time and a day. There's a reason why it says that when you get married, you leave and cleave and become one. When you leave and cleave, you're not up under the same way that you are when you're a minor. And he goes on here and he says, not debaucherous, not insubordinate. And then he says in verse seven, for an overseer is God's steward must be above reproach. And this is where I got into that whole thing about power that goes fleshly. Leader, a, a humble leadership position that turns into fleshly power. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Leadership that takes on a fleshly turn. Before he gets there, though, he reiterates what he said in verse 6. For an overseer. Now, here's something to keep in mind. And this is important, if nothing else, what does it mean to be an elder? He uses the word episkopos in verse 7. He used the word presbyteros in verse 5. And you say, why is that? Why are you telling me that? The only reason I'm telling you that is this. When you look to, if, if you listen to Rome, Rome would say these are all three specific offices, the Roman Catholic Church. I believe wholeheartedly 1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20 use those three terms. They use, and I'm only giving you the terms so you can see the differences. Presbyteros, episkopos, poemane. Three terms describing one office, but demonstrating the function of the one office. And here I think it's demonstrated. It's not another role he's talking about in verse 7. He's speaking about the elder that he started with in verse 5. It's one consistent, continuous list. And look at what he says, and we're going to close. Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Insubordination for an overseer is God's steward. God's steward. Listen to this. He's a steward. I love this. A steward is one who is administrator, a person who manages the domestic affairs of a family business or minor, a treasurer, a chamberlain of a city, a house manager, an overseer, a steward. I was reading about this, and it's a beautiful picture of the role. It's God's church. And here it says, the church is God's household and elders, overseers, pastors are God's stewards in that household. The church belongs to God, but he has given human oversight to elders who in his behalf and using their giftedness are responsible to spiritually feed, lead, train, counsel, discipline, and encourage church members. 
as a steward, think about it. If you keep, if leaders keep their mind and their heart on what the word says, they're not the power people. They're simply a steward. They're simply been given gifts that were not of their merit. It's all of grace. They're to act as a steward accountable to God for all that they do and for all in the way that they do it. So this morning we see that God's church is serious. It's a serious endeavor, and we need to make sure that the leadership of the church functions in a way that honors God. I tell you, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? I, I follow this one thing, and, um, and some of the reporting just deals with the heartache of uh, leadership that goes in a way that's sinful. And you talk about a spot on a witness for Christ. And I pray, one way you can pray for this church, you know, as we think about how elders are to function, how deacons are to function, is you can pray for the purity of this church. You can pray that uh, the leadership would lead in a way that reflects Christ because things get haywire quick when leaders lose their understanding of what they're called to be and why they're given the position they're given. I want to leave you with this, though. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace, grace, grace. Grace is not just salvation. Grace is enabling power that enables men who once were pagans to live reflecting their creator, to live reflecting the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And how does that take place? Through the gospel of the risen Christ. It's the only way it takes place. And so as we, uh, as we go through Titus, and next week we'll finish up this list, I pray we would see the importance of a leadership that honors God that we would see the importance of a leadership that reflects these two offices and that we would understand that it's of great weight and consequence as we think about the health of God's church. Would you bow your head?